just for a moment or two, let's think about uh, babies. Newborn babies are lovely, uh, aren't they? But I think we all do know that there is a special season in human life. There is a sweet spot in human life that runs from when a kid is about a month old right through to maybe about 18 months. Isn't that a lovely period of human existence? Isn't it? To see a child develop? Come on. That first time when you see a baby smile, uh, when a baby learns, the first time a baby is able to sit up by themselves, when a baby is able to laugh for the first time. That period of time before the terrible twos kick in right? That is a lovely season of human existence. Well, when we uh, consider the Lord Jesus Christ ourselves, what do we think about? I suppose it's probably true that at this time of year, we think about Jesus, and often we think about him as a newborn baby, don't we, in Bethlehem? And for the rest of the year, of course, uh, we think about Jesus as an adult. Is it not quite remarkable to think about what we get to do this morning, you and I get to linger on God enfleshed, maybe even at this point, God enfleshed as a toddler. Isn't that something? To consider this morning the events that surrounded the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as an infant. And as we do that this morning from Matthew's gospel, what I think we will see is the sheer (laughs) uncontested sovereignty of our God. Now, you know, and it is obvious to say that there are lots of ways that we can handle a portion of God's word. Let me explain to you what we're going to do this morning. What I want to do, as strange as it may sound, is I want us to work through this portion of Scripture twice. You heard that right. I want us to work through this portion of Scripture twice. I want us to split the sermon in two, and I want to work from top to tail, and then to go back to the beginning to do the same again, more briefly the second time around. Why? So that we might be able to track two in particular, two a great grand theme. So are you with me? We're going to go through this text and we're going to go through it, believe it or not, we'll go through it twice. Uh, so can I ask you to make sure that you have a copy of God's Word in front of you? Uh, Matthew, I'll give you the reference again. So it was Matthew chapter 2 uh, from verse 13 to the end of the chapter. If you're visiting or you don't have a, a copy of the Bible, uh, don't worry, we're going to make Fraser work for his money this morning, and we will make sure that there are the references uh, up on the screen as much as we can. So, we work through this section twice. The first heading, then, of the two is this. Let's notice together God's sovereign protection. (coughs) Excuse me. Do we have that? God's sovereign protection. Now, Uh, Of course, it's true to say that there are a lot of people traveling at this time of year, uh, so it might not be true for all of us. But if you were here in the building last week, you'll remember, I hope, 
uh, what we saw. Do you remember that we saw the infant Jesus visited by wise men uh, bearing gifts? You'd agree that we left things, I'm sure, on a bit of a knife edge, did we? A bit of a cliffhanger. You remember it? Herod had demanded that these magi would come back and report to him. And what did the magi do? But they went home a different direction. And you and I were left last week wondering, well, Herod, Herod is not going to be happy about this. So what happens next? Well, if you do look down at your page, surely you notice with me that there are three parts uh, to this section in front of us. Do you notice this? Let's walk through these very, very quickly. So what happens in this first section. If we can put it up on the screen in verse 13, if we can manage that, yes. So do you get it? At this point, Joseph has another dream. You can remember the first one from last week. He has another dream. Now, he is warned this time by the angel. Now, do do you see what it says? Rise, take the child and his mother. Are you reading it with me? and flee to Egypt, remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. What ought we, what should we think about there? I think we ought to marvel at the utter wickedness in the heart of man. I mean, Herod is willing to do absolutely everything to obstruct the Lord Jesus and God's purposes. Yes, we ought to note that. We ought to notice to where the family flee. Where do they go? They go to Egypt, a destination that made a lot of sense because of the large Jewish population that was in Egypt at the time. But the thing that I want you to notice more than anything else is actually the change of word order that I have behind me on the screen. Do you see it? Instead of that regular formula, mother and child, mother and child, mother and child, mother and child, what does Matthew do here? What does he do all the way through this text? He changes it, do you notice? What he does is he takes that that term child and he brings it right to the front. Why? For emphasis. He wants us to know this angel is warning this family. Why? So that the infant Jesus above all that the infant Jesus be protected and be protected from harm. Child mother. Can I tell you about myself as a dad? See, as a new father, I was hopeless. I was a hopeless new father, a new dad. There was probably loads of problems. One of the main problems was that I was way too uh, protective you know, as a new dad, I was just a warrior. Uh, you know that expression, what is it, like uh, wrapping up a, a child in cotton wool? When Colin was a little newborn baby, I would have been quite happy to see his arms and legs in cotton wool. Uh, I would have been happy to wrap him up in bubble wrap, a wee newborn Michelin baby. I was way too protective. Is that what we're dealing with here? I mean, is this threat from Herod, is it a little bit overblown? Is this an example of God 
being an overprotective father, is it? Well, no, because what do we read when we we move into the second section? If we look at verse 16, what actually happens here? Can you see it there? Look at it with me. Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked, he becomes furious, doesn't he? And then how does he act? You've heard it a thousand times, but consider it. He sent and he killed. He kills all the male children in Bethlehem and in the surrounding area who were, he kills all the wee boys who are two years old or under. He kills them. Isn't it? Isn't it startling? Now, let me just pause there for a moment. I want you to appreciate that this moment, what we have here is a a familiar stomping ground for Bible critics. So a lot of liberal critics and liberal churches, liberal Bible critics, they will say, see this slaughter in Bethlehem? They will say to us that it never happens. That, oh, because it's not recorded in a contemporary sort of Jewish historical sources. It's not recorded elsewhere. And so this is being made up by Matthew, this slaughter. It, it never, never happens. And you will hear that a lot. I want to say uh, two things to that, if you'll allow me to do it. The first is that this is probably not the mass slaughter that we often think it is. Now, you maybe follow. Do you, Bethlehem, think about it, in the first century, do you know it was just a little village? Bethlehem is a small town. We're talking about a population, probably about a maximum of a thousand people. And so you can say, I'm going to use the word only here, but you'll, you'll be patient with me. What we're dealing with is only the slaughter of about 8 to 10, 12, maybe max 15 little boys. And so you can see it. It isn't surprising, is it? That when we come to the Jewish historical sources like Josephus that are written about 50 years later, more, 70 years later, if we're dealing with those sorts of numbers, it's not actually that surprising that they don't record this event, is it? That's the first thing to say. The second thing that I need to say is that this is entirely in keeping with what we do know from the history of the time. Now, listen to me, please. From records, we know that this man, Herod here, Herod, was a filthy brute of a man. This man, Herod, was a man who killed his own wife. This man, Herod, was a man, listen to it, Here is a man who killed three of his own boys. He killed three of his own kids. Do you see it? This is entirely this event, this mass slaughter here. This is entirely in keeping with what we know of this man. And do you see what subsequently what that means? It means this is not a divine overreaction. Do you see what it means? It means that God the Father has acted and he has acted to preserve his son. He has acted to protect the infant Jesus from harm. Now, let me ask you, uh, what are you expecting at this point to happen? (laughs) I think maybe you and I could be expecting at this point, the credits roll. Do you see at least what I mean? Herod wanted to kill Jesus. 
God has protected Jesus, and we might want to turn and expect to turn our Bibles and read, and so the family returned home, and they lived happily ever after. And actually, that's not what happens. Do you notice it as we come into our third section? Do do you see it? What we come to is this strange complication. Do you see? So as Mary and Joseph, they return home, they're returning home, they learn that Archelaus has assumed the throne in Judea. Now, if you and I were thinking that Herod was brutal, we need to understand that Herod was positively a softy compared to Archelaus. Now, you're ready for this detail. Archelaus assumes the throne in Judea. His first act as ruler, he slaughters 3,000 people who are observing the Passover. He slaughters them. His reign, Archelaus's reign, was so utterly barbaric that what the Romans had to do was come in almost immediately and dethrone him. I mean, that is almost laughable, isn't it? How barbaric do you have to be to be too barbaric for the Roman Empire. Now, let's not, you and I, make a mistake at this point here. You see what it could be. We could uh, hear about Mary and Joseph, and they make plans to avoid Archelaus, and they settle elsewhere. What's the mistake we could make? We could make the mistake that they have done this of their own accord. They changed their plans their own inclinations, and that is not right. There's an important phrase. If we bring up verse 22, now do you see the important phrase here? They don't just decide to settle somewhere else. Do you see the phrase? Second last line there. And being warned in a dream. Isn't it marvelous when we chart this section from beginning to end, What do you see? Time and time again, what you have is God the Father acting to ensure the protection and the preservation of his son. Friends, the involvement of the other persons of the Trinity, it did not stop in the womb of Mary. Do you see that God the Father, at every twist, And every turn of this story, God the Father is acting to ensure the infant Jesus is protected and he is protected from harm. Now you know by now what we have to do. We have to surely seek to apply this to the life of our church. And I think there's application at least for a couple of groups in this room uh, just now. First of all, I think there's application here for the children of St. Peter's. Uh, So I wonder if all the the boys and girls would listen to me. First thing I want to say to the young people is that it is lovely to have you in the room. It's lovely to be able to speak to you uh, this morning. Uh, When we think about the Christian life, boys and girls, this is what I think we tend to do a lot of the time. When we think about practical Christianity and the Christian life, I think what we can do is think that that applies to mum and dad 
and that that applies to the adults. Now, you know what mum and dad can do, and you know what the adults, the Christian adults in here can do. When we have, as adults, trouble or there's stresses and strains in our life, what we can do is we can turn to Jesus, can't we? Why can we pray to Jesus? Because we have in Jesus someone who, in heaven, who is, yes, he is all-powerful, but isn't it true, boys and girls, that Jesus understands our problems as adults? Because after all, think about what Jesus experienced as an adult. Jesus experienced all manner of trial, all manner of temptation. So what can the adults do? We can turn to Jesus and he understands. Now, listen, boys and girls, do you begin to see why this section of scripture is so precious to you and valuable? Will you listen to what I'm going to say here? Listen, we learn here in Matthew 2, Jesus experienced hardship as a child, not just as an adult. We're seeing here that Jesus experienced trial and difficulty, and he did so as an infant. Now, do you see why that's wonderful for the young people in here? Do you see why it's a marvelous thing? It means now you have someone you can turn to when you have trouble or you have worries. When you have anxieties, you can go to Jesus because he understands. And so to all the young people, all the boys and girls in the room, I would really urge you to do that because we can talk a good talk, can't we, in the life of the church. But I would really urge you, if you've got worries at school, things you're concerned about, if there's problems, first thing that you can do is turn to Jesus and pray, really speak to Jesus because he understands and he wants to hear from you. But then there is a second group uh, to whom this applies. And that group, quite simply, is all of the Christians that are part of St. Peter's. Because surely you're with me. The question we're asking of this section is, well, why is it exactly that God protects Jesus? How would you answer that? How is it, that, why is it that God here protects Jesus? Why does he do it? I think for so many of us, immediately we go to Jesus' identity, don't we? Why does God protect Jesus? We think, well, it's because of who he is. I mean, this is God's son. God protects him because this is an instance of the fatherly care for Jesus. Is that where we go in our heads? Well, of course it's true. But isn't there more? Part of the reason God protects Jesus here, friends, is because of the role, the task that our Lord Jesus had to fulfill. Who is he? Who is Jesus? We say, God's son, yes. But this infant Jesus, he's God's Messiah. He is the one that God has decreed would deliver his people, save his people, redeem his people from their sins. That's why partly he is protected. And I think, honestly, that should bring great comfort to you, Christian friends. You see what it means? It surely means that God will also spiritually protect you and he will spiritually protect me. Yes, God had purpose to send his son to redeem his people, but there's something else that's part of that great plan. God has also purpose to take you as part of the same plan to take you to be with him, purpose to take you to abide with him, to know him, take you to inhabit a renewed earth with him. And what do we learn in Matthew chapter two? Nothing, absolutely nothing 
can stand in God's way. That plan for you that God has is utterly unstoppable. Not even a man like Herod, not even a man like Archelaus can stand in God's way. You can see it, I'm sure, can you? As God protected Christ, so today God will protect Christ's body and protect it from all spiritual harm. We see God's sovereign protection. Uh, Secondly, we see here God's sovereign orchestration. His sovereign orchestration. Okay, uh, can can I ask uh, whether you have seen the film uh, A Shot at Glory, or whether you have even heard of the film A Shot at Glory. (laughs) A Shot at Glory is a 2002 film movie and uh, the reason partly the reason that I bring it up is because of the cast <laughs> you have to wait for this uh, a shot of glory it starred first of all Robert Duval, the Oscar winner he of you know Godfather famous this film starred Robert Duval. And then secondly, as the headline actor, it starred Robert Duval and, wait, Ali McCoist, the footballer. You heard that right? Robert Duval, Oscar winner. And somebody thought, I I know who we need. (laughs) I know who we need for this film. Robert Duval and Ali McCoist, the footballer. I remember uh, watching this film with my friends on DVD uh, for the first time, and we laughed so much at how bad, how rotten this film was. All the way through, we laughed. What did we decide to do as soon as the credits rolled? We said, we have to watch this Again, so that's what we did. As soon as the credits rolled, we went back to the start and we watched this again in all of its supposed glory, this film. We we finished it, went back to the start. That is what I want us to do. Not because we're laughing, but we've charted our way through this three these three sections. And what I want to do now, albeit much more briefly, again, I say to you, don't panic, more briefly, I want us to go back and I want us to chart our way through because do you notice what we have in each of the three sections if you have your Bible open? What do you see? One in each of the three parts of this section. Do you see? What we have are three quotations from Old Testament prophecy. Do you notice them? One in each of the three sections. So I want us just to note them, wrestle with them, and to ask, well, wait a minute, what does that tell us of the infant Jesus? What do these three prophecies tell us of this God that we love and worship today? So Fraser, would you mind putting up the the first of the prophecies in verse 15? Now, can we remember where we are? We go back, we retrace our steps. We're at the beginning. Do you remember what happened? An angel appears, and there's this plan for the family to go to Egypt, to wait in Egypt. And the angel says, and we will bring you back out of Egypt, remember, to Joseph and Mary. Now, would you read what's on the screen with me? What does Matthew then say? 
He says this plan was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Let's make sure we get the next words. Out of Egypt, I call my son. Out of Egypt, I call my son. What is that? That is a quotation, isn't it, from the book of Hosea, chapter 11, where Hosea is looking back to one critical point in Israel's history. Now, I want the boys and girls, since you're in the room for the sermon, I want you to work. You ready for this? I want you to try and work out what period in Israel's history is Hosea speaking about. So you think about it. Think about your Bible. Think about the beginning of the Bible. Out of Egypt, out of Egypt, what do we think it is? The Exodus. Is that right? Out of Egypt? That period where from this time of slavery, what does God do, friends? God graciously brings his people up out of slavery. Where does he bring them? Brings them back home. And why does God do it? Isaiah 49. Why does God bring Israel out of slavery? He tells us in Isaiah 49, he has done this so that Israel might be a light, a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. Now that is the big picture, isn't it? What, I ask you, is the big problem? Two words. Israel fails. That's right, isn't it? God graciously acts. He he brings Israel out of Egypt and out of slavery, and Israel grumbles and complains, and Israel breaks covenant with God, and the Israel of God fails to be that light to the Gentiles and light to the nations. And so don't you see, don't you see how marvelous it is now that these words, this Old Testament prophecy here in Matthew 2 is now applied to Jesus Christ? Don't you see what that tells us? God has worked, and though Israel has failed, what has God done? He has provided one who will not fail, one who has succeeded. Isn't that right? Out of Egypt, I call my son. Do you see it? God sends his son to fulfill where Israel failed. And isn't it amazing to think about the detail of that? What God is doing is using Herod using Herod, all of his wicked intentions, God using that for good, God using that to have his son go back down into Egypt only so that he could call him out of Egypt. And only so that this morning, you might be in here and that you might be reminded of the identity of Jesus Christ. And who is he? He is the true Israel of God. And I hope and I genuinely have prayed and do pray that each and every one of you would see and grasp and embrace that idea. He is the true Israel of God. I mean, do you see it? Jesus is the one that in his life, he has recapitulated all of the history of the nation of Israel and he has recapitulated it all absent. Any sin. 
Isn't that beautiful? But you can see it as you think about how the gospels unfold. What does God tell you of Jesus? God tells you Jesus is the vine, that great symbol of Israel. But what sort of vine is our Savior and Lord and God says to us, yes, unlike Israel, Jesus Christ, he is the true vine. He is a fruitful vine. He's a vine that bears fruit. And then we think about what goes on soon. Soon, like Israel, Jesus is sent out into the wilderness, isn't he? For how long? For 40 days and for 40 nights. Isn't that right? But Jesus Christ doesn't grumble. He does not complain. He remains faithful. Do you see it? Do you see how beautiful this phrase is? It shows you Jesus Christ, the true Israel of God, the one who has, for you, Christian friends, lived representatively, but all without sin. But then, more briefly, let's look at the second prophecy. If we could bring that up in verse 18, remember how solemn it is. Think about how solemn it is. Herod has just slaughtered little boys. He's killed the children And then Matthew records this. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. You scratch your head a little bit at that. I mean, we've read that. We read that every Christmas. What does it mean? What is it? Rachel weeping, loud lamentation. What is it? It is, of course, a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31. Rachel, of course, that great matriarch of Israel, right? She was buried, wasn't she? On the way to Bethlehem. We remember that, don't we? And so what does Jeremiah do? Jeremiah portrays Rachel as weeping and mourning as the people of Israel are taken away into captivity in Jeremiah's time. There's this great deportation all being deported, all of these people. And Jeremiah has Rachel weeping and, and crying at this. That's fine, but we still scratch our heads and say, that's great, we understand the context. But what does that have to do with the Lord Jesus Christ? Please listen. Friends, though that section in Jeremiah was filled with lament, the context is actually a context of wonderful hope. Jeremiah, though he writes these words, he is looking ahead. He's looking down the line filled with hope and he is, Jeremiah 31, if you know your Bible, he's looking ahead to a time of new covenant fulfillment. And so don't you see how marvelous it is in Matthew chapter two? Because what is God doing God is actually using man's evil for good. Herod has slaughtered children. But what does God do? He uses the mourning and he uses the lament, the crying out, all to point people to the identity of Jesus Christ. We ask God, well, who is he? Who's the child? Who's the infant? And what is the response? He is the one that Jeremiah was waiting for. This little infant child, he is the one who brings hope. This little child, in him, all of the promises of the new covenant are fulfilled. Weeping, mourning in Jesus Christ, all of it turns to wonderful, eternal joy. And then we close, and we close 
with a headache for your minister. We close with a puzzle. I wonder if you know where I'm going with the mystery here. Do you? Think about where we are in the story. We're just at the end of the story. Mary and Joseph. Okay, Herod's died. Mary and Joseph are coming north, aren't they? They're coming back to Israel. And uh, they settle in Galilee because of this dream. Fraser, could you put up verse 23? Uh, And what do we read? We read, all of this happened so that, so they settle in Nazareth. This happened so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. What does it say? That he would be called Nazarene. What's the puzzle? What's the problem? The problem is that nowhere in the Old Testament does it say he would be called a Nazarene. (laughs) Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Old Testament rather, would you find that phrase. So what's going on? Perhaps it's not as problematic as we might think. You notice, don't you, that it's plural? Do you see it this time? Unlike the other times, uh, it was what was spoken by the prophets, plural. So what is in view is not so much a phrase, but what is in view here is the fulfillment of an Old Testament theme. Do you see it? What do we know about lots of Old Testament prophecies? When they prophesy of the Messiah, what do they prophesy? That when the Messiah comes, he would be despised. Isn't that what comes to mind? Despised, rejected. Lots of verses we could go to, but there's some in your head right now, aren't they? What about Isaiah 53? He was despised and rejected. Amen. Can we remember Psalm 22? Can we? He will be scorned by mankind. He will be, he will be despised by the people. What about Isaiah 49? We mentioned it a minute ago. Listen to this. Isaiah 49. He will be deeply despised and abhorred by the nation. And wait a minute. What do we know about the region where Mary and Joseph settled? What do we know about the wider region of Galilee? We know, don't we? It was a place of ridicule. A place thoroughly despised. What did the, did the Pharisees say in John chapter 7? This Galilee. Galilee. No prophet could come from Galilee. And then you zero in on Google Maps, don't you? From Galilee right into Nazareth. And what do we know about Nazareth? I mean, Nazareth was a backwards, hick town. It was a blot on the map. It was a place the inhabitants were laughed at, ridicules. You remember it as well as I do. Nazareth, what good, what, you know, what good can come out of Nazareth? Don't you see it in all of its splendor? God's sovereign orchestration. God is using this wicked man, Archelaus. And he's using his wickedness and God is using it for good. He uses Archelaus to ensure that Joseph and Mary settle in that region. God uses Archelaus to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. No, wait a minute. Linger on it. God uses that evil man to ensure that his son, the Messiah, would indeed grow up despised, 
grow up in obscurity, grow up in rejection. And so, yeah, we could end right now. We could with practical application, couldn't we? If you feel today, Christian friend, as though you are rejected by men, and in obscurity, passed over, ridiculed all. Behold your Savior. Behold the one in whom you can find comfort, the one who understands. We could absolutely rest and end there. But should we not end just thinking about and wondering about the cost, the cost borne by God for our salvation? For you, for you, God condescended to be a toddler with all of the humiliation that involves More than that, God condescended to live and abide in Nazareth. But you know, it didn't end there. That the hatred and that being despised and the rejection just continued through our Lord's life until he was put to death on a cross. So I ask you, Christian friends, what ought you to conclude from all of that? If you look at the cost, What must you conclude this morning? You must conclude that God must love you so much. He must love you so much because he did all of that, the Lord Jesus, so that you might never abide in a spiritual Nazareth. He endured all of that, all of that pain and rejection so that you might live with God in the new city in the new Jerusalem of God, faced with the cost of your salvation, surely as we go from here and we seek to live for the glory and the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, we praise you that you were called a Nazarene. We praise you, Lord God, that you have orchestrated all of human history. Men have meant much for evil and you've turned it for good. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you endured that obscurity and rejection and pain and suffering. You endured even the wrath of your loving father at our sin, all to save us. How you must love your bride, the church. And we praise you for that love. In Jesus' name, amen.